Is this on? Yeah, it is. I think that's all right. I think there are still people in line out there. I'm not sure. Are there still people in that line? No line. No line? Okay. It's nice to be back. I'm looking around because there were two Indian women who I met, they're not here, who said they were coming, so I want to make sure that they knew where they were coming to. Oh, they came in the building, so they had to be here. You want to look for them, Pam? come back and I haven't been here in a few weeks I always feel very reassured to uh, just you feel better when you come in here and I was here earlier this morning because one morning a month is an online class that happens and uh, it's a different kind of a feeling to be with and now with Zoom you can see the people you're talking to but it's still not the same as being in the same room as uh, being with people that you're talking to. So I'm glad we're here. Are there some people here who have never come on a, on a, uh, who I haven't met before? That's it. What's your name? Where do you live? Why did you come today? Are you a nurse at Marin General? They have great ads on the. <laughs> Isn't it true? They and 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 so uh, transparent. Tell people tell you their whole kidney situation, everything. But the, I mean, it's very compelling. And that whole building is not too distracting. That whole building business that's going on, or it is distracting. And it's going to be done. Wow, wow! And it's not going to have a helicopter plays on the roof. The the county voted it down. I'm so sorry about that because I've seen people have to get 
transferred, they helicoptered them down into the park across the street, and then they have to send an ambulance across the street to get them. It's a... (laughs) This is the same county that voted down rapid transit a long time ago. (laughs) Because it didn't suit them to keep this idyllic, so now we'll have the helicopter at land here instead of here. It's... So you're a Trish, Trish. Who else has never been here before? Yeah, what's your name? I'm Donna. And where do you live? Tiburon. And why did you come today? I'll tell him you said. Uh, also, I ha- that you reminded me, I brought some material from my son Michael. Um, oh, what did he do with the material? My son Michael, who many people met here last year <laughs> because he came to talk about the, uh, the fact that he participates in the AIDS ride that collects money for AIDS research every year. That Oh, here it is. And uh, the, the, there's a bike ride. It's a 580-mile bike ride or something that goes from San Francisco, leaves this Sunday from San Francisco and comes to Los Angeles the following Saturday. And people who ride the ride get um, uh, solicit, um, as he does, donations for AIDS research. They do it as a contribution and their ride causes other people to contribute money. And uh, this is his latest um, uh, this is his latest letter that he sends out because the, the ride is about to start. Well, this is as good a time as any, but the most reason when the ride is about to start and he's, he's writing to everybody on his list. And it says, thanks to all of you, I have raised over $110,000 in 10 years. 10 years, not all this year. $18,000 this year. And, uh, uh, and he's done it every year for 10 years. And um, I was trying to put off my eye surgery until after the ride. He's had a lot of health problems. But after visiting with Dr. Hartley last Monday, she suggested that we do the surgery sooner rather than later. So last Wednesday, the surgery went really well. As of yesterday, his uh, doctor said he could go back and do whatever activity he wanted to do. So he's leaving on Sunday. And people say, why do you keep on doing this? And he says, it's uh, hard to say, but he then uh, includes a story that he read somewhere. Uh, that the story is told in some public place, I guess he read it, of somebody who wrote about asking uh, someone who had a custodial job in his office, somebody staying late in his office, her office, unclear, uh, and talking to someone who had a custodial job there because he said he had noticed that this person seemed cheerful. And she said... um, what do you do that keeps you cheerful? And she said, I don't know. Um, 
but uh, some years ago, my husband died of cancer. Three months later, my only son was killed in a, in a car accident. I had nobody. I had nothing left. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I never smiled at anyone. I even thought of taking my own life. Then one evening, a kitten followed me home from work. Somehow I felt sorry for that kitten. It was cold outside, so I decided to let the kitten in. I got it some milk. The kitten licked the plate clean. Then it rubbed against my leg. And for the first time in months, I realized I was smiling. So I stopped to think if helping a little kitten could make me smile. Maybe doing something for people could make me happy. So the next day, I baked some biscuits and took them to a neighbor who was sick in bed. Every day, I try to do something nice for somebody. Today, I don't know of anybody who sleeps better than I do. I have found happiness by giving it to others. And this story ends by saying, the beauty of life does not depend on how happy you are, but how happy other people can be because of you. Happiness is not a destination, it's a journey. Happiness is not tomorrow, it's now. This is a line that I really like. Happiness is not a dependency. It's a decision. And, you know, I really wanted to talk a lot about a, a subject that interests me very much is if it's a decision, how come some people can make it like that woman when they have had their lives devastated and other people can't? And uh, my friend... Um, Linda Graham has written a book called Bouncing Back about uh, what's the neurophysiology of bouncing back. How do we get to make a decision? I have to live differently. This doesn't work. And and actually do it. People do it all the time in, in, in 12-step. They say, this isn't working. I need to do it another way. And... Uh, you know, there are steps and 12 steps and community support, but one of the, the, the key things is to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do something else. It's a whole different way that I have all planned out to go, so we'll just tag that and say, I'll come back to that. Because I want to say, what enables people, some people can do it, say, I'm not doing that anymore, I'm doing this. And what is it in people, that's maybe it's something about confidence in themselves, that in the end allows them to say, I'm not doing this anymore. But thank you for knowing Michael, and he's about to go and do that ride again. Um, <laughs> you might be one of the people who's on his list, of, uh, and then you, you got that same letter in the mail, in the email. Who else has not been here before? I'll get them, and I'll come over you. What's your name? Luis, where do you live? Spend the nine years in New York and Philadelphia. And now you're out here, or is this a holiday, or you? No, I I like it out here. <laughs> a lot of people do, so I'm glad about that. And I'm glad you decided to come today. And who else? Sunita, you put up your hand a minute ago. I, I'm ahead of you. I know Sunita and uh, Kavera, Kaveri are here from Bangalore because I met them earlier this morning. Uh, so I know about their names and I know about Bangalore. 
and I know that Kaveri is a student at MIT. You started already, or now you're starting? You're f- Why did you choose MIT? It's a very big relief, I think, to apply early admission because everybody else is tearing their hair out, worrying, and you already know. So that's great. So Sunita, uh, when we walked up from the other building this morning, because they were here early, told me what she does as a work. And I said, um, when I introduce people, would you mind telling people what you do as a work? Because uh, it's my premise, my hypothesis, that when we hear something that's an uplifting thing, we feel better. So I wanted to test it out. This is an uplift. Like when you heard that person who was the custodian in that business enterprise who said, I feel better when I help out other people, so now I'm a happy person. Didn't you feel better? And you yourself are not doing that. But still, that there are people who figured that out or had the grace happen in their life that that became clear to them and they were able to rescue themselves. Ah, So I asked Sunita if she would mind telling you what she does in Bangalore. You want to stand up so they'll hear you better? Yeah. No? Good, good. Sure, sure. Better? Yeah. So um, we we used to live in the Bay Area and then move back to India 15 years ago to work in the development sector. I'm a computer software engineer by training. And um, for the last 15 years, I've been working initially in the water and sanitation section and more recently in the last five years on health, on public health. just to give you a quick context, in India, the public health issues are you know, fairly significant. Uh, more than 40 million people fall into poverty every year because of a medical-related uh, issue. Right? And about, um, it's called the diabetes capital in the world. There are about 60 or 70 million people who have diabetes. Um, the awareness of these diseases is very low. So many times people catch these diseases. I mean, they find out about these diseases when they're much, uh, when it's in the fairly late stage. And then it's too late to do anything about it. So overall, the health indicators are not very good, especially in the rural areas where the awareness is lower. So um, government of India wanted to run programs, awareness programs, to screen and treat people for non-communicable diseases hypertension, diabetes, and uh, oral breast and cervical cancers, uh, breast and cervical for women, right? Um, So, and this is a population-level program. They want to treat, um, screen everybody over the age of 30, and um, if they find issues, treat them for free and then help them manage the disease. So, uh, I work at Dell, and we've been providing a technology solution to help government run this better, because 
In the rural areas, you don't have too many doctors. People don't want to go live in the rural areas. So you have health workers, and they are not often very well trained. So using technology could help them be more productive and do their job better, and it can help them reach out to more people. So through this program that we're uh, running with Government of India, it's going to reach out to um, initially in the first couple of years to 37 million people, men and women over the age of 30, and then later it's going to scale up to the whole country. So um, we are providing, you know, mobile cloud analytics solutions, you know, technology solutions for health workers, doctors, and government officials to run the program better. So um, I have the opportunity because of this program to go very often to the rural areas and work directly with the health workers and doctors um, to train them on the technology so that they can do their job better. And uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful, been very meaningful and satisfying. And I was just telling Sylvia, and she said I should share it with all of you. So and I'm glad to be here. So number one, we'll do the experiment. Did that lift up your heart to think that in a couple of years a million people will be getting screened? A billion people will be getting screened. Or at least, you know, 550 million because the people over 30, so... Okay, 550 <laughs> million people. But some of the, you know, some, because there's a lot of bad rap about electronics. Everybody's got electronics. People are getting addicted to their electronics. Electronics are magic. And we can be, have health care and health screening for half a billion people. And we have that little problem of too much, you know, with personal absorption. But the, the personal absorption is a bigger problem than with the electronics. The personal absorption is a big problem with the happiness in general. Like that story about I find somebody else that I could make happy and that will make me happy. That's like the biggest piece of information that human beings in their evolution can figure out at this point. Thank you, Sunita. Were your three children born here? Uh, two, two children, yeah. Both my son and my daughter were born here. Does that give them United States citizenship? We all are, actually. We've lived here for a long time. So and so you have dual citizenship. Yes, yes. We have something called yeah. Fabulous. Very good. <laughs> good, good. Who else have I not met before? What's your name? Shannon. Where do you live, Shannon? Oakland. And why did you come? That's a very good field trip. Uh, it's not on oh, no, it's t it's Wednesday. I think it was Monday. You stay all day and take a night class. But anyway, welcome. Thank you. Everybody else. Everybody else said hello. If you haven't been here before. And uh, Brahmini and Ace are not here today. If they were here, they would say, Sylvia, you promised that at this point everybody should turn to their person that they don't know, somebody that they don't know near them, and take one minute to say hello, welcome, I'm glad you're here. Ready, set, go.
family was too shy to raise our hands. Yeah. Oh. But I wanted, I came with my husband and son. I met you at Colson Park. Oh. At the JCC the other day. Oh, just a couple of weeks ago when I was yeah. there with, uh, uh, yeah, with Rabbi, um, David, yeah, yeah, what's your name? Wendy. Wendy. Do you live here? Do you live in Mill Valley? <laughs> I love it that when when we say let's take a minute I love it that everybody figures out things to talk about and they get excited about it and I, and, and I feel some confusion oh maybe we should spend more time talking to each other or maybe at the end of the time people should stay and talk to each other I was just thinking when, as I started to say that I thought of a well, probably a silly story that was told to me as an old Sufi story of uh, a, a very uh, a teacher with a very big name comes to a certain city, and the the villages are all, village, and the villages are all very eager to hear this teacher teach, and they come rushing to the announced place, and the teacher says, "Oh, villagers, who here knows what I'm going to say?" And they say, we don't, we don't. That's why we all came. He said, nobody knows anything. I can't even start here. I'm leaving. So then the next week he comes again and they've prepared. He said, oh, villagers, who here knows what I'm going to teach? And they said, we know, we know, we know. He said, if everybody knows, you don't need me. And leaves. <laughs> he comes back the next week. He said, oh, villagers, da 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 Who here knows what I'm going to teach? They've been thinking about it. You know, they say... Some of us do, and some of us don't. He said, okay, then those of you who do should tell those of you who don't. So, <laughs> and I often feel that when we share with each other, people have very good wisdom. Today, mostly I brought stuff of other people's very good wisdom. To put it in a context, I do, well, I'm not even going to start to teach yet. No, no, I got all my papers out. But we're going to sit first. The sitting... I'll tell you another story about the sitting. 
that's an important sitting story because one of the things that I've been teaching more and more as I get older, as my life goes on, as times change, as we live in this very complex era, I keep teaching that the whole life is one long practice period. It's not like ding and we go back in a regular life. That mindfulness practice is really... The venue of mindfulness practice is the whole entire life, not just in the meditation hall for sure. It's a good place to really maybe relax a little bit and get a little bit some sense of what a clear mind moment to moment feels like because when you're here, there's not much troubling on the outside. The, the uh, washing machine does not beep to tell you to put the stuff in the dryer. The phone does not ring. The, 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 even the cell phone doesn't ting or the computer doesn't ding. Nothing dings. Car, trucks do not grumble by. But you brought your mind with you, which is a problem. The, um, there's a book by John Kabat-Zinn called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And that's it. You, you you take your whole mind. Some people come on retreat and they say the thing on retreat is that my problems in my life are worse here than they are, seem worse here than at home because there's nothing else to compete with them. I, you know, I can't like dilute them with other stuff. But there is something about just stopping a little bit and the story I was going to tell you was a Thich Nhat Hanh story of him telling a story of uh, living in France after there had been the leaving of Vietnam after the turmoil there and living uh, in, I'm sure, a precursor of Plum Village but in a place, maybe a, 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 um, a re... re uh, distribution uh, of displaced persons camp living in a place where he had charge of a, a six or seven year old boy who was living with him and he had custody of this boy and he said um, the boy came running in from uh, playing and he said uncle which is an honorific for a person who's not your actual family uh, uncle I'd like some apple juice so he poured, it said, poured him some apple juice and it was the unfiltered kind so when you pour it it's cloudy and he said that apple juice doesn't look good uncle and he goes out for a while to play and the apple juice sits on the table and after a while the child comes back in and the apple juice has settled down and you can see right through it and it, it looks like clear apple juice over the cloud that's in the bottom of course said, oh, this apple juice looks good, and drinks it. That's, and then the boy says to him, Uncle, when you sit and meditate, is your mind like the apple juice? And that was a very meaningful story. Do you like that story? I haven't told it in a very long time. I liked it, it from the very beginning of hearing it. I still like it. Because there's something to just stop. Just stop. When you can, you can't always just stop. You have to act on the spot. But just stopping at various times in the day or the life, it somehow, it's like stuff settles down a little bit. Then you think, okay. Actually, it's the mind then prioritizes it. 
it says, uh, as you're sitting down and you're just, okay, nothing happening, I can just relax. That's going to be the instruction. I'll probably say, say to yourself, breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile, and tribute to Thich Nhat Hanh, because it, it's a meditation that he suggests. But it's hard to do that for 20 minutes, keep on smiling purposely every breath. It's hard. I find that sometimes I say smiling, but I don't want to say the phrase over myself for 20 minutes. But it sets up a mood in the mind. But the mind relaxes, for want of a better word. And it has less uh, bombardment of stimuli. And then stuff that it's, it filters up in terms of priority. Like it says, uh, you know, you forgot to uh, call so-and-so back this morning. Or you forgot to take your um, pill this morning. Take it when class is over. It lets you know stuff that's important and online to do. Sometimes it lets you do things. That, it lets you know things that are, in fact, um, correctives. Uh, like, um, you know, yesterday when so and so called me to talk, I didn't talk as long as they would have wanted to, and I feel like I kind of hurried them off the phone, and I. Maybe I'll call them this afternoon and see what, because I really feel that there was something else they needed to say. It's a little bit of a moral inventory. Sometimes you, you have a prayer service that has a spontaneous moral inventory, or you say in the prayer service, I'd like a spontaneous moral inventory. Sometimes you don't say, I'd like a spontaneous moral inventory, and you have one anyway. And uh, when I'm on retreat, I find that it's always good to take a little notebook with me and leave it next to my retreat space, my right next to my zafu or my chair. Because in the course of the retreat, my mind will tell me a lot of things, that you forgot to do this or you forgot to do that or you ought to correct that. It's like a moral inventory machine, for which I'm always grateful. First of all, there are a lot of important things that you could forget that you have to do. And even the things that say, you know, Sylvia... You didn't do that too cool. You really should fix that up. I feel very good to think that human beings come with a moral inventory machine. I like to think it's installed from birth that we are inclined towards goodness, but I don't know that for sure. Maybe it gets installed by your parents in the beginning of your life, or maybe it gets installed if you have certain kind of attentive parents who have moral inventory as part of their the way that they're strung. But um, but it's nice to think that human beings are inclined in that direction. And that all you have to do, without saying, may it arise my moral inventory, is just sit quietly for a while and not do anything. I am inclined these days when I'm doing my sitting practice not to do too many... Uh, formal things like count my breaths or see when they're arising or passing away. Or Sometimes on retreat I do all kinds of different things with my breath in order to keep my mind alert and keep it from falling asleep. But uh, on a daily basis, it's like apple juice. It's just sitting for a while with nothing happening other than it being able to pass away. One way to say that as an instruction is the way um, Ajahn Amaro used to be uh, in the Bay Area. 
and a friend of Spirit Rock who now is the abbot of a monastery in London gives the best instructions, I think. He says, obviously sit down and then let the mind and body, and we'll just do it, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body I just love that that is the natural peace of the mind and body assume that and then just stay that way I love that part of the instruction too since it assumes that you could It takes intention and some discipline, but that you can. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay that way. Only stay alert to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease. And so what I'll do is just sit here and whatever is happening is happening breathing is happening thinking thoughts this way that way sensations in the body it's not a problem then it's peace and ease if something captivates my attention makes it into a story creates a tension in the mind then I'll probably take a long breath in and out and let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is natural to it.
when we come to the end of sitting together quietly, it's become um, a normal part of coming together again as a group to take these last few minutes to mention somebody that we're thinking about because this is a time of um, special good fortune in their life or special difficulty in their life for us to really recognize those as parts of what it means to be a human being. I'm particularly thinking this morning that Ellen Bausch isn't here this morning. I don't think Ellen is here. And she said she'd particularly like to be here today because it's the first day of her daughter's chemotherapy, which she understood was going to be this afternoon, and she thought she'd like to be here in the morning to sustain herself and to be able to mention it. But I don't see her here, so I am mentioning it on behalf of Ellen and uh, her daughter Elizabeth. Who are you thinking about?
I'm thinking of my friend Red Wing, who sent an email to her circle of friends yesterday asking them to sit on her behalf uh, just about now today for her first um, infusion uh, for her recurrence of ovarian cancer after a five-year remission. I'm also thinking about how sustaining it is to sit in a group for me and I hope for you to sit in a group of people with whom I feel at ease in a place where I feel at ease from where I am particularly I can see uh, 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 now more than adolescent male deer walking across the hill in the distance with antlers not great big antlers, but enough antlers to know he's growing up. And really a bevy of turkeys parked outside of our door, sitting quite... Yeah, there, there were five of them sitting right there on the hill. I like to think that they come where the vibes are good. So we're not just sitting alone, we're sitting with everybody else. And the turkeys are marching around and the stag up there is marching around. And, and we are sitting here with the current cycle of people coming through with people borning and dying. We don't know everybody. I don't know everybody's name here. And, but we've become for some period of time a community of people sitting together appreciating that we're part of this cycle of life coming and going and upping and downing. May everyone that we've mentioned be sustained in their lives by having people who care about them. And we may we feel sustained by the people that we care about, that their lives are part of ours in the cycle of caring that keeps this all going on. Everybody's in that web of coming and going. If our friend Kate Muller was here, Munger was here, I'd ask her to uh, lead us in chanting that uh, chant from the Threshold Choir with words I discovered recently were from Ramdas. I didn't know that. The words are, we're all just walking each other home. That seems very friendly. May all people be sustained on their walk from here to there and there to here. 
May we feel at home here and everywhere. It's really very sweet. Do you see those turkeys out there? Five of them sitting and one of them right by the door as if he's waiting for us to open it. And Sometimes they peck at the, at the window because they see each other and I think it's that they can't figure out that it's not them. That they're... But there's a bunch of them out there. I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, who I've been quoting a lot this morning, who said the next Buddha, because there's a, a tradition of saying that the Buddha that we recognize as Shakyamuni Buddha wasn't the first Buddha and that another Buddha will sometime come. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh a long time ago said the next Buddha is going to be the Sangha. And I think that's really true. Uh, there's that lovely new book by uh, Larry Yang called Awakening Together that it's different now, uh, that it's still true that tension in the mind is, the co- is suffering and that it's possible to decrease the tension in the mind and live more at ease, more happily. And that the, the fact that the world is 2,500 years older than when the Buddha articulated his noble truths doesn't mean that those truths aren't the same truths. But more people know more things about more people now than they used to, given the miracle of electronics. We know what's happening all over this globe. We know how fast it's melting. We know how polluted it is, how, what the potential is for unpolluting it. And I think that knowing all of that, that community is, um, is more a possibility of awakening both the support of the whole world community and our attention being caught by the struggles of the whole world community. We can't be any place anymore in the most comfortable day with a, everything in our family okay without knowing that there's so much else going on out there that our, uh, our minds, I think, are um, more than ever uh, aware of the amount of suffering in the world that doesn't need to be there. That when the Buddha talked about suffering, he talked about um, not getting what you want and not, or getting what you want and finding out that it isn't what you wanted after all or that it doesn't last which is true of everything. Uh, And how that's sad. Uh, I once said that to one of my teachers early on. I said, said, it's all passing away. It's passing away. Everything is passing away. I thought I was having such a monumental insight about um, impermanence. 
I said, it's so sad. And he said, no, it's not sad, Sylvia. It's, it's just true. And I thought, well, okay, so he's just being a semanticist about it. It's true. But that doesn't mean it's not poignant and it's not touching. There is, in all my current movie-going, a, um, a uh, coming attraction for a movie that I'm, I, I won't see because it's too painful even to see the coming attractions uh, because it's, it's the, the photographs for it are shot in some island in the South Pacific, some very deserted island that nothing is there except I think storks is what, or albatross, albatrosses is what's there. And there's tremendous uh, photography of, of great flocks of albatrosses landing and uh, in this whole area, something like the movies about the penguins all coming to a certain place and they mate and they stay there with their egg and they take care of it. And and the, those egg, eggs for baby albatrosses hatch and you see them and they're so cute. And you also see that certain birds are dead on the beach and they're cut up so you can see what's in them and they're full of pieces of plastic, of plastic junk from polluted oceans. And the whole movie is part of a cause to... I think it I don't know what country it is that's taken the initiative to ban plastic. The UK is working on it. But when you think about it, and uh, you know, we've we've befouled our nest in a in a certain way. I remember learning that. 60 or 70 years ago in, a, in an anthropology class that you can tell that a species is about to become extinct when it befouls its own nest. So we are doing that. It doesn't take care to go out of its dwelling place to do all of its stuff. So, so but the, which could be the cause of great despair, but at the same time it's possible to be the cause of great... Um, initiative and great imperative to make a difference and to go out and say something or do something or try to get pre-screening on all of India. There's a billion people in India. Is it more than China or less than China or the same as China? And you think about it and the numbers of people who are out trying to do something about it. I'll tell you what I thought about these whole... Uh, it's been three weeks since I was here. And I remember that uh, we were talking about this particular list. Who doesn't have this peculiar... Not peculiar. This particular... Uh, okay. I brought more. just Because so, we're just going to start with talking about them briefly. But if you don't have one of these charts... This is a chart of the virtues of the heart. It's a piece of Buddhism uh, that the Buddha, in the many lists that are part of Buddhism, the qualities of the heart are a list of ten qualities. And the perfection of those qualities is supposed to have been, Anne here, no, no, she's coming, Anne, Anne, oh, more, Everybody's got? Who hasn't got? Over here. Okay, we're coming, we're coming. 
No worries, no worries. There are lots of more. We can make more. Do we need to make more? Make another 20, Pam. We'll need them next week. Uh, In the list of... uh, The Buddha taught with lists because uh, at least one of the things that's probably a trustworthy enough uh, estimate of history is that the first writings of... This is what the Buddha taught didn't happen until 300 years after the Buddha died. And it didn't happen in India, it happened in Sri Lanka, and it happened in another language. So if you think about when you play, when children play, um, what's that? Um, Telephone at a birthday party, and you have 10 children sitting, and the first one says railroad and whispers it, and it comes out toothpaste at the end of 10 people. So you have to think what got changed in the 300 years between the Buddha taught and it emerged in Sri Lanka 300 years later. Because it wasn't written down, it was memorized by people, and much many of the suttas, many of the sermons that are part of the canon begin, thus have I heard. In the village of such and such, the blessed one came and he um, told his monks, okay, we'll stay here. And he, he then said, okay, I'm going to teach. And he gave the following teaching. The teaching got passed on for all those years, they say, by word of mouth. People just memorized them. And the way that they memorized them, presumably, was the making of lists so there's a list of the Eightfold Path. These are the eight ways that you can uh, refine your own mind so that it'll be uh, able to keep itself pretty clear, like the apple juice. I'll show you, I brought some visual aids today. This is a, uh, a cup that has an insignia on it that was uh, popular, alas, in uh, great, alas, that it had to be popular during the uh, Second World War. It says, keep calm and carry on. And Britain being known for stiff upper lip and, you know, just keep calm and carry on. You think to yourself, I was thinking to myself, that's a very good uh, admonition because if we were calm, like the apple juice, we could not only carry on, but we would carry on in a way that would be helpful because we would see with clarity what would be good to do. What would be the best move to make? I've been telling people that, when, I, especially when I hear people say, well, I know mindfulness. Mindfulness is being alert in every moment to what's exactly going on in your body and in, in your mind and how you're responding to what's going on. That's mindfulness, moment-to-moment awareness. Okay, Pam's got some more papers there, and here comes Anne and Pam with papers. So, your hand up if you need one. Over here, over there, over there. Oh. I think I stopped in the middle of a sentence. I don't even know where I was. Uh, moment to moment awareness. Thank you very much. But... That's not the definition. Of, that's not the definition of mindfulness. That's a half of the definition of mindfulness. Moment to moment, full, clear awareness of what's arising, 
so that you can know what would be the most skillful thing to do. Because if you don't, you react in some kind of impulsive way, get out of here, or I need that. And impulse rarely... uh, Impulse sometimes is a good impulse, but if if it's a good impulse, fine. If it's a a random impulse or a self-centered impulse, that's it. I need to get rid of this. I need to have that. It's probably not going to be so good. I want to talk about an impulse that we all were talking about yesterday because uh, a child was dangling from a fourth floor uh, apartment building. Everybody saw that on the news or on the front page of the newspaper. A child had somehow slipped through. Here he is. A Spider-Man migrant in Paris scales a building to save a child. So over here is a child literally dangling from a fourth floor balcony. And here's a man climbing up who sees it from the street. He sees a, a crowd gathered around. And he climbs up the building in less than 30 seconds. You'd think it would take a while. But he's arm... No, but he's, he's not like... He's arm over arm swinging himself up to the top. It's, on, it's actually on video. If you go look at it on YouTube or something, you'll find it on video. Because it's amazing. He goes ding, 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 ding. And it does look like Spider-Man just reaching out and going up. And, and he, it's a long, the, fa- the child's father had gone to the store. He hadn't come back because he got involved playing Pokemon Go. And, you know, and his child is dangling from the balcony. It's really a terrible story. But here's this guy going by, 22 years old. It says, it says where he's from. Uh, 22-year-old. Identified as Mamudo Guzman, 22, is a migrant from Mali, a troubled French colony in northwest Africa, without documentation. Been six months in Great Britain. Up, 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 and he snatches a child and brings him up to safety. And after that, it said in the article, he was crying and shaken. I mean, it's an amazing thing. But people asked him, why did you do that? What were you thinking? He said, I wasn't thinking. I just saw that. And I did it. And and, uh, When you saw it, how did you feel? Who saw it? What did you think? What did you think? Elated. What else? Amazed. It was a wonderful story. I'm looking for my glasses. Just a minute. They're not on my face, right? (laughs) By my cup. No, they're not. Wait a minute. No glasses. They're not hanging on my neck. That would be embarrassing. Okay. 
alas, I can't read without them. Uh, ah! <laughs> Here's the problem. Uh, he did get uh, documentation right away. The fire department invited him to join the Paris fire department. Uh, the president gave him uh, immediate papers. And uh, a man who is the head of an agency that uh, is trying to help migrants says, uh, I, I admire the bravery of Mama Ma Mamudu Gassama, he said, um, and I dream of a country where it wouldn't be necessary to scale a building to save the life of a child at the risk of one's own life to be treated like a human being when you are a migrant. And I thought about that, and I thought, this is really the important thing. But then I thought also, I thought about, I'll come here and I'll talk about it, because I want to say also, every, everything that you talk about is not the end to a question, but it's the beginning of an exploration. It would be wonderful if there was a way to, for all the 70 million people who are at this point migrants walking around on the surface of this globe to be able to be taken in by everybody who's around and fed and housed and clothed. If this was a world where everybody really got it, that we're all people and we're all here and it'll be a much better world if we take care of each other and stop killing each other. We spend more money on armaments in the world than on anything else. We could save all that money on armaments and nuclear weaponry and all those other things and just take care of each other and ourselves and clean up the atmosphere and all of that. What would it take to do that? I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I followed them next week he <laughs> but he had to admit it we don't know what that would be like we but don't See, I, brava, I read an article yesterday that, it's, that completely links with that. It, said, um, it says in the Metta Sutta, in the Sermon on Kindness, it, in its instructions, for this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, and then goes on to say all the things, that, the ways that you should behave if you, if you are skilled in maintaining peace in your own heart and peace in your own mind, that it would transfer into peace in the world. because And the simile that they give in that same sutta is just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, just so should we as all beings look after everyone. 
I want to, that's really, I, I, if, if it were an hour from now, I would be saying this is the way I wanted to end this class. I wanted to say that I think in some uh, vastly unbelievable way is what I think is the possible end for human beings in their trajectory of evolution. I think we are more evolved, the world is, than uh, a thousand years ago. I, th- I think we have, we have civilizations, we have democracies, we like to think that we have democracies. We, might, we understand things like morality and kindness and we admire people who do fully, uh, spontaneously kind gestures. Mothers do those kinds of gestures. I remember as a child, every once in a while, you'd see a story in the newspaper of a mother who, uh, whose child gets run over by a car. I guess the car knocks a child down and the mother picks up the front of the car. Do you ever see one of those pictures in some sort of a newspaper? I don't know that you could do it for a long time. But, but did you have superhuman kind of strength to do that? Like this guy's just zoomed up the side of a building and he's not a mother. I told a story this morning about um, a couple of years ago, there was a you probably saw it as well, a man in New York waiting on the subway station platform. for You remember the story? A man waiting for a train to come in. He's got two children with him, young children. And the train is coming into the station and a man has an epileptic seizure and falls down into the track and this man leaves his two children, two sons, leaps into the oncoming train and apparently pushes that person down in between the tracks. And the train rushes over him, screeches to a halt. They're all waiting. And you can hear his voice. He says, we're okay down here. Please look after my sons. I mean, ah, the, you know, I, I had so admired that I would be terrified if I were in that seen when it was happening because I would know that I can't do that I don't have the strength and I don't have the poise and I don't have the anything but some people do and I so admire them and this guy went up the side of a building yesterday people in wartime situations do amazing things may we not know about too many war them rushing after taking care of one of their uh, fellow soldiers. People, when they think it's kin, this guy yesterday in Paris, though, didn't think it was kin. I mean, this was not a child that he knew. And he went up the side of a building. Yeah? Well, I just saw Ai Weiwei in Chicago who released a new film called Human Flow where he went around to all the refugee camps around the world and photographed everybody and what's going on. And his message is we have to see each other as all interconnected. Yeah. And I think that's what makes people, if you really connect that this thing you being, Yeah. Well, you don't see that we're not, you know, that, that, that they're not. Your family, John, you have experience with, John right behind you went to the, well, what do you want to say? I'm sure you wanted to say something about this whole topic. living in very difficult conditions in these camps. And um, fortunately, I was, well, 
it was frustrating at first because there's so many people suffering and you're just by yourself trying to help thousands of people. And then uh, fortunately I was able to um, find a family that I related to and was able to help them out with little things. And what I learned from that experience is that it's the small acts of kindness. Um, not trying to save the world or change the world, but just to help one individual or one family. And you never know what's going to happen with that family. Yeah. And how they're going to take that small act of kindness and then it might change their whole world. Mm. So that's one of the lessons I learned uh, from that experience. And why, there's so many things in what you just said, John, about... You don't know when you do a particular act of kindness what down the road are going to be the sequelae of that. The, I saw a movie a couple of days ago called uh, uh, A Sack of Marbles. I think I talked about it earlier this morning when I was on my, my, uh, the video class. I, did I talk about it this morning or not? About the sack of marbles. About a Jewish family in Paris, when the occupation, when the Germans come in and occupy Paris and are about to uh, round up all the Jews, their two eldest children go off, I guess, to uh, actually to try to make their way down to uh, in the free zone in the south of France um, to people that they know in uh, Nice. And the two younger boys who were not there to leave with them who look in the film, this is a true story as well, this is not those actors, people acting those parts, but it's a true story, uh, look like they're 8 and 13 or something, and the parents send them off with instructions of where to go, but they tell them, memorize the instructions, and never, and then destroy the paper, so nobody can ever find that. And the travails that they go through, and at the end, at the very end, in the credits, you see these two little boys who come through there eventually, are two old men sitting in a bar in Paris having a beer together. And you're so happy about it that you realize that every one of the truck drivers or every one of the people that gave them a heads up, there are guys coming down the street along the way, if any one of those people would have not cooperated, they would not be having a beer in Paris 70 years later. That... Uh, it didn't stop the horrible truth of that particular Holocaust. And it didn't stop any Holocaust. It's still happening in Rwanda and Darfur and Syria and here and there. I think that there's a leading end of the evolution of people uh, from, from however... We're all trying to get... We're all trying to move along, and some people are the trailing end of realizing that everybody's our kin, and some people seem to be the beginning end, uh, or some people realizing that um, you feel better if you take care of other people than if you take care of yourself. I have a whole pile of things that I brought because I was thinking about you. We were talking about that from the the last time I was here about uh, how do you get over being traumatized and uh, how do you get over even more traumatizing other people, which was a really uh, important part. I read this, I read this uh, 
article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. I won't read the whole thing, but uh, it's about the hospice workers at uh, in a federal prison where there's a hospice because a, a huge number of inmates there, many of them, maybe all of them serving life sentences. And they get old and they get sick and they die. And when they're sick enough to be in hospice, they, uh, they're treated by doctors and nurses for their medical things, but they are looked after. Their caretakers are inmates who apply for those jobs. I know that Nancy does that and has taken care of people at the end of their life. I should probably let you talk more about how valuable... You want to say something about the, the life of the caretaker is enhanced by taking care of other people. Should I give you a minute to think or... There you go. As you said earlier today, happiness doesn't depend on how much happiness you have, but how much happiness you give to other people. And one of the most rewarding things about being a hospice worker is the people that you meet who amazingly will accept you into their life at one of the most critical passages, one of the most critical times in their life. And... To be with them through that experience is, it's educational, it's enriching, it's rewarding, it's amazing, it's magical, it's, I love my work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually better than any of these quotes that I could uh, (laughs) read to you. One of the things that became clear in my mind as you were speaking is I found several things about this whole article very touching, but uh, particularly I, w- I was thinking about when somebody is transferred to uh, hospice from having been not in hospice, they arrive, it's a, they, it, it, the people who are taking care of them are themselves inmates, and uh, it's a, they were bringing in a new patient to be in the hospice because he was now sick enough to be there. And two, two people, co-workers, are uh, making his bed with clean sheets and a red flowery quilt. And there, and uh, where does it say? They're issued a bag of slippers and um, well, something else to keep them comfortable. But, oh, here. Oh, special things that you give people in the hospital, like special socks and special this and special that, and treating them with all this special care. And I was thinking, all these poor men who were all those years in that place, they were the same men then that uh, maybe didn't get so much special care and didn't get maybe people speaking to them so kindly as these hospice workers are. And if we really had huge minds, I mean, we, wouldn't, we would keep people who need to be in prison in prison, but we would speak to them kindly because the people who are there are, have been very badly hurt. Nobody's in there. I mean, they hurt a lot of people, but generally speaking, because they have some sickness of mind or neurology or something that caused them to hurt people. 
But they, the, one of the workers, in talking about how glad he was to be able to uh, do this kind of work, he said, I never asked to know what it was that that person did when they come in and they're uh, now going to have hospice care. He said, I don't want to know because it might change my way that I behave with them and I don't want to do that because I want to be able to just be most... Didn't, didn't say it exactly this way. But uh, the, the purple person who wrote this um, article said, uh, he asked that, he said, how can you do that? How can you reconcile the, you know, what you're doing now, this kind care that you're taking care of, people who you know are serial killers or terrible, they've done terrible things, and they're elderly, they're bedridden, they're incontinent. He said the workers are also themselves there for crimes. Uh, and they think badly, they, they might think badly of themselves as well. But this particular worker who's an inmate there said, death is a great equalizer. Death is a great, great equalizer. You know, there's like nothing left to say because this person is dying. You don't have to be in a rage at them anymore. They can't hurt you. They're in a prison and they're dying. And what comes out from other people who have done terrible things is they're helping them and they report that they feel better. It does not make up for the terrible things that they did. But it's like an atonement. Many years ago, like 20 years ago, I spent um, a month at a uh, intensive Hebrew seminar in uh, Natanya in uh, Israel. Because of the t- I can read Hebrew since I was a child, but uh, I can't speak it really other than, uh, hello, my name is Sylvia, I live in California. That's about it. <laughs> and I'm a psychologist. Uh, but I wanted to be able to uh, be able to make a little bit of conversation for complicated other reasons. Anyway, I was there for a month without family, just myself, going to school for a month with assorted people who wanted to increase their fluency in Hebrew. And uh, most of the people in my class were immigrants, new immigrants to Israel from from Russia. And uh, after they were able to leave Russia, they came to Israel. And so it was uh, it was an extra challenge because they uh, they spoke their new Hebrew with a very thick Russian accent. So for a novice speaker, it's hard enough to know what people are saying if they articulate clearly. If they're talking through a Russian accent. It's more it's harder. But it was a very good experience for me. And uh, among, um, among the people in the class, in fact, the person who turned out to be my study buddy that I spent most of the, okay, now be with a partner and you work on this verb or that verb and you decline that verb in various tenses back and forth. It was a man named Gustav. And Gustav was actually a young man. Uh, I don't think he was out of his 30s. And he uh, was German. And he was from, uh, he born in Germany, grew up there. And he was part of an organization of uh, Christians. It was actually a religious organization of Christians whose religious practice uh, was caring for elderly survivors of the Holocaust who had no place to be, 
who did not have an old folks home to belong to, they established an old folks home in Israel for people who didn't otherwise have a place to live when they were old. So people who had made it to Israel, but they're a single person, they didn't have a family, what and they didn't have a lot of means, and they had some way of discovering all these people. And they had a community of perhaps 20 people when I visited them who were uh, invited to join this community. It was uh, right outside of Haifa. And um, they lived there until the end of their lives. And these people, young people from Germany, who many of them had uh, family. They had, they were couples with children. And they lived in this there was a big building and outbuildings, and they lived there. And they were the people who took care of these elderly Jews, Holocaust survivors, who were going to die in Israel but needed people to do particular sort of uh, uh, my hospice care for them. Um, hospice care. And I went, I went with him. I went with Gustav once uh, to... Uh, he took me home for the weekend to visit his family. He said, on the way, he said, I want to stop. And um, so we were going to his, we, oh no, we were going to his house where he lived with these people. Now I remember the whole scene. And so on weekend, we didn't have classes, so I went with him. And on the way to the place, he said, oh, I want to stop in this town. There's a woman here who's in that category, an elderly woman, who needs to move into the hospice, really, because she's coming to the place where she can't really care for herself. But she's still afraid of leaving what's familiar to her. She doesn't want she to leave her apartment. And I visit with her every week on my way home for the weekend, so she'll get more used to me. And then we park, and she says, is that all right with you? Yes, it's all right with me. And so we park outside, and he said... Um, uh, I have to leave you outside here. You don't mind. I'll, I'll be a half hour or so. I have to leave you outside because this woman is afraid of strangers. And so he went in. And I'm thinking about the fact that uh, here's this poor old woman that is afraid of strangers. And in that situation, I am the stranger. I am another, I'm an old woman who's a Jew, was alive during the Holocaust, and Gustav is a German, and he's not wasn't even alive. Or if he was alive, he was a very young person, and maybe it was his it was his parents or his grandparents' generation who had done that. But she's not afraid of him. It was very it was just odd for me to be. I and I totally understood it. I didn't feel bad about it. But I thought, how odd, you know, that the weird world. Then he came out and he said, she's, you know, she's getting more used to me. I'm pretty sure she's going to move into the place. And we go on to that place and uh, the, she shows me to my room and then we're going to have a Friday night dinner. And uh, so Friday night dinner is a big deal to Jews. Who, that's really the time that the whole family is expected to be home and have a special dinner and say special blessings and special prayers. And uh, uh, here I am sitting next to next to Gustav, probably. No, no, I remember he was right over there playing the guitar. People around, and they mix themselves up, the people from the community of Germans and the people for, who are living in the home. And you can tell who's who, because the people living in the home are old. 
and the Germans are all young. And uh, some old, old man in a wheelchair pulled himself up because he's going to say the first prayer and you have to hold up a glass of wine and recite a prayer and drink from it. He's in a wheelchair. to push himself up and lean on the table and say his prayer and then drink the wine and sit back down. And everyone at the table at that point, or anyone now at a Sabbath table, will look at each other and give each other a kiss and they will say to each other Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace. And they're just greeting each other with a blessing of peace. So the old man does his thing and he sits down and uh, the young German across the table from me says to the elderly Jewish woman sitting next to me, he holds up his glass to her and he says Shabbat Shalom. And she holds up her glass to him and says, Shabbat Shalom. And I did, I get like goose pimples all over me when I say that. And I'm thinking it's, it's like these guys in that federal prison. You keep writing the end on the story. Gustav and his community of Christians are writing an end. They're writing a little end to the story. And it's not an end that's commensurate with the amount of devastation that... That, that his grandparents' generation did in mid-century. It doesn't, they'll save 20 lives or 40 lives. It's not anything like that. But that life mattered. And for that old woman to say Shabbat Shalom to somebody who's grandfather, we fix it one thing at a time. In our own lives, I think, we keep on repairing things that we didn't feel good about whether we did it or somebody that we knew did it. It's again, doing something good for somebody who needs something good done for them makes you feel good. You know, <coughs> I was going to put it all together in a certain way. When we talked about those, those charts last time, Bring the charts next week. Are we here next week? I think so. Bring the charts next week. I like these charts so much. The more I like them, the more I look at them, the more I like them. It's very odd to say because I made up those charts a long time ago. <laughs> There's not somebody else's chart. I made it up. But I think it's incons- it, it is consistent in its theoretical underpinning. And I want to do that again with you next week. Uh, because I don't think that you do any of those single traits individually. You say, okay, now I'm going to do honesty. And, uh, and now I'm just going to be absolutely scrupulous about everything I say and how I say it, and I won't exaggerate, and I won't vilify, and I won't this, and I won't that. Okay, I'm practicing honesty. But at the same time that I'm practicing honesty, I'm also practicing um, generosity, because I'm making a, 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 a level playing field. I'm not hold, withholding information from other people. I'm not confusing other people. It's also morality. I'm not confusing other people. I'm not saying untruths about other people. I, I'm sure that when you hear, I don't want to talk about anything that sounds like I'm vilifying, but not in the spirit of vilifying, but in the spirit of what I'm talking about, when you hear people like in mass media say terrible things that you know are not true about other people, and it's not about you, doesn't it hurt you to hear falsehoods 
And it, it's like painful to know this kind of stuff is out there. So not to add to the stuff that's out there that's, that's not truthful. So an act of honesty and truth-telling is actually an act of generosity. It's actually an act of morality. It's, a, it's its own form of a gift, keeping things good for other people. I always like to think about when you go to the dry cleaners because your dress that you're going to wear that night is absolutely going to be there that afternoon and it's not there. That the, your patience in not saying something nasty to the dry cleaning person or to the people around you, can you believe this dry cleaning establishment? They said it was going to be today and it's not today. By saying, well, I guess it's not here today. I'll come back tomorrow. Preserves the peace. It teaches everybody else how to not to make the world worse. It's difficult enough. My friend Tony Bernhardt, who works in the prisons as a mindfulness teacher, teaches the second noble truth as uh, we make it worse. He does the first noble truth, which is life is complicated. Or he says it more vernacular. He says shit happens. Then he says the second noble truth is we make it worse. And the third noble truth is we don't have to. And the fourth noble truth is here's how. And it's the list of the Eightfold Path, Ways to Train the Mind. So I like that, I, I like that list. But I, I want to continue with it because the last time I was here, we had nine groups talking about the first nine of those. And we didn't talk about ec- ec- equanimity. And I said, well, the next time, I'm going to take the whole time and I'm definitely going to talk about equanimity. So now we're four, ten minutes from the end of the time. But I did think about equanimity a lot this whole time. When I'm not here, I'm collecting all this stuff because I'm thinking about what really is equanimity. My favorite teaching phrase about equanimity is it's the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. That phrase comes from Gil Fransdahl, and I love that phrase because... I just think it's so... I, I, I try always to do that little sound of, hmm, this is what's happening now. Because I don't say that every minute. You know, things are happening now that are not difficulties. You don't particularly notice about them, you know. But if it's suddenly there's some consternation in the mind, it goes, hmm, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next is an instruction not to act out of impulse or imperative. It's a reminder that you could restrain yourself. It's a reminder that there's going to be a next. Barack Obama, in his last speech as president, said nothing is the end of the world until the end of the world, which I love. But there's going to be a next, and it's going to be something else. And it could not be better than what's now, but it'll be something else. You don't have to say... Ah, it's all over. It's not all over. And how it will be is a result not only of how everybody else responds in the world, but also how I respond. And how I respond will be the principal determinant of how much clarity I'm going to have. If I respond with, oh, oh, terrible, 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 I won't be able to figure out what's the best thing to do. But keep calm and carry on. If we could, is the best kind of thoughtfulness, okay, this is what's going on, 
Let's see what happens next. And the second half of that statement is, let's see what happens next. And what should I do about it? So that what happens next is informed by what I do as well as what the whole rest of the world does. It's such a, when I think about that, that's such a moment of immediately linked with the butterfly flaps her wings in Boston and there's a typhoon in the South Pacific. But if you think about, we are the, we are the summation of all, of everything that's ever happened in the whole world. Our, our fleeting lives are a tiny, tiny, insignificant mark, but so is a butterfly's wing flap. But all together, the, the, maybe the, 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 the best kind of invocation for oneself would be, uh, may my addition to the world be a, um, a kind one. May my effect on the world be one that adds to its kindness. Someone asked um, Ajahn Pasano, who was teaching right up here last Sunday. He was a really splendid teacher who was teaching in honor of Ajahn Chah, whose 100th birthday it would have been if he was alive, but he isn't. But he was the principal teacher of Ajahn Pasano. Ajahn Chah was also the principal teacher of Jack Hornfield. And someone asked Ajahn Chah, how do you know if somebody is making progress on the spiritual path? You want to guess? Guess. What do you think Ajahn Pasano would have said? Yeah, that's about it. That's about it. He said that what you would notice the ratio of warm-hearted responses in the mind, the ratio of those benevolence uh, mind states to the ratio, uh, the ratio of those benevolent mind states to not benevolent mind states, uh, like greed or anger or resentment or bitterness or envy or any of those things, which pass through at least in, in living beings, they, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think it's possible to be a living being and not respond neurologically before you respond thoughtfully. That, uh, uh, there's an ad that'll probably see it on, again on TV uh, because it's that time of the year of someone knocks on a door, publishes clearinghouse. This is a gift for a million dollars. And and they're, you know, regular people somewhere in the whole United States, and they get hysterical right away. And uh, it's hard not to have the thought, these are just regular people. It could have been me. It wouldn't have been so bad if it would have been me, you know. I would have done such good things. I would have given it to this cause or that cause or the other cause. Don't you think that sometimes when you see that somebody wins a jackpot? How many people ever here bought a uh, lottery ticket? When you bought that lottery ticket, did it pass through your mind what you would do if you won? Yeah. Did you think to yourself what you would give it to? I do. You know, which, what things I'd like to support. And it's always true for me that when I do that, 
I don't do it frequently. I don't buy the lottery ticket frequently. But if I do, when I do, I think to myself, if I won, I would support this, that, and the other. But before I did that, I would pay off my mortgages and those of my children, probably, because that's a big worry, homelessness. I'd do a few little things just that personally I know about. Then the rest, the whole world could have. That's, I think, how things work with human beings. But really, mostly give it away. But then, let's see what happens next. Don't do impulsively. Don't do impulsively. And to be able to see past that, that it would be really lovely if everybody didn't do impulsively. Unless the impulse is like that guy who went up the side of the building. That was a very... That was a fantastic impulse. Let's see what happens next. And what can I do to affect a non-suffering outcome? That'd be a good thing to think about. What can I do to add to this situation? What if everybody, in a good way, what if everybody did that? I came upon a a car accident, an accident, a, a car hit a pedestrian on a, New York street corner not so long ago when I was there, screeching to a halt. Nobody dies, but there was an accident. Somebody fell over. And immediately, everybody was on their cell phone calling 911, all the people around. And everybody around me that I was listening to, you know, it was a crowded street corner. They were all calling for 911, but all pe- people said, oh, I'm so sorry I saw that. I can't stand that. It upset my whole day. Uh, <laughs> somebody else, uh, some mother said to a child, you see, I told you, you have to never step off the curb. <laughs> yeah, everybody reacts to that in their, in their own idiosyncratic way. But fundamentally, everybody calls 911. You, know, you do that. That's the thing that interests me very much. How, how do we figure out how to be really... We are, um, we are communal people and we are linked neurologically to our family just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child. Just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. How do we get from the one and only child to the all beings and are people just strung that way are some people different from other people how did that guy jump under the tree train or that guy go up the side of the apartment building maybe the best for those of us who don't jump in front of trains or up, up, up apartment buildings would be to just keep telling each other that some people do so we have a good feeling about the potential of human beings, that humans are amazing. And they're also not amazing. That's just a... How to think about that. You know, one of the lists I had was I started to make another one of the charts. And it would make equanimity the same as um, mindfulness the same as insight, the same as wisdom, the same as compassion, and ultimately the same as forgiveness. And that it would ultimately maybe all come down to forgiveness in the end, forgiving people for what they did 
and forgiving ourselves for what we did because we couldn't do other and they couldn't do other and everybody's doing exactly the only thing that they can do given their experience and their genes and their neurology and their health and their whatever and that I think is um, that's the big forgiveness so thank you for being here take good care we'll see each other next week don't make it worse (laughs) oh I forgot I forgot I forgot anybody wants a strawberry Come and have the strawberry. The strawberries are here because they're the end of that Zen story. That strawberry looks very good. Want a strawberry? Why don't you give out strawberries to anybody who wants one? Did you have, um, do you have one of those extra papers that you're outlining? Extra papers. Oh, they're so You know, I don't, but I want to get you one. I'll ask. Have a strawberry. You're welcome. Uh, ah, more papers. There you go. Is anybody... Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, wait, wait, wait. Is anybody driving to San Francisco? Palo Alto. Are you going through San Francisco? We have two Indian women from Bangalore. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.